You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our next Journal Club episode of Simulcast for June 2018, and it's Victoria Brazel. I'm joined again by Ben Simon to bring you this month's main paper and a few extra besides. How are you, Ben? Good. We've had a good month, a big month for both of us, I think. Lots of travel. Yeah, absolutely. I've been over at CSAM and we've got an episode summarising that coming up in which I chat about the conference with Gabe Reedy. But uh, right now we're going to jump right into it and talk about TALK, a very interesting article looking at uh, clinical debriefing. Tell us about it, Ben. Yeah, so this month we looked at an article by Stuart Rose and Adam Chang entitled Charge Nurse Facilitated Clinical Debriefing in the Emergency Department. It's published in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine in May 2018. And it addresses sort of a pretty hot issue at the moment with regard to this kind of growing hunger for clinical debriefing in uh, a lot of EDs. And the paper acknowledges that after a recess, a lot of physicians and ED nurses are often uh, straight away pulled back to see other patients and that that can really interfere with the frequency and consistency of debriefing in, in an actual emergency department. So... Um, what uh, Cheng and Rose have done here is uh, propose that actually sometimes the most ideal person for that uh, debriefing might actually be charge nurses because they don't tend to have a single patient load, they have a lot of clinical experience, they're very situationally aware, um, and they're team-minded. So they have a lot of the kind of attributes that we'd hope for in a clinical debriefer. And because they're not necessarily pulled away immediately to other patients because they're more managing flow, uh, the article advocates that we can maybe transfer some sense of ownership to them in terms of running the clinical debriefing within an emergency department. So in three of these hospitals in Calgary, they created a new tightly scripted model for uh, ED debriefing that involves immediate on-site debriefs uh, by ED charge nurses, and it's triggered by either CPR or intubation or level one trauma or just staff requests, and it's called the info model. It's called that because it stands for immediate, not for assessment, fast facilitated feedback with opportunity to ask questions. Um, And I guess in terms of the structure, it's um, quite tightly scripted and, and fairly uh, streamline. So it involves setting some ground rules and some timing expectations, allocating a timekeeper and a scribe, getting a plus delta from each of the participants in terms of what they'd change about the group's approach while making sure that it's not about individual performance and then actually documenting that feedback and feeding it back uh, higher up the chain as well. They rolled that out using a four-hour train-the-trainer model for their nurse educators and local champions. And then on top of that, they had a two-hour program to teach the scripts involved for the debriefs to um, the charge nurses. And in terms of its success, they've now completed over 254 debriefs involving about 1,300 staff. Um, And they provide within the article a number of examples of uh, feedback pathways that have led to uh, some kind of practice change within the emergency. It's very much uh, an educational innovation type paper, Um, so less about uh, sort of comparing it with another model, for example. It's more sort of one of the types of articles I really enjoy, which is just sort of information sharing and um, showing people what they're doing in their departments and whether we can maybe incorporate it in our own. What did you think, Vic? Yeah, first of all, I think the need for this kind of discussion is high. I mean, just in the last month, 
uh, the nurses in our department have come to me and said, oh, we've had two root cause analyses that have recommended a clinical debriefing program uh, for the emergency department. So whether that's right or wrong, there's certainly a lot of discussion going on about it. Uh, and interestingly, again, just in the last 48 hours, I got involved in a Twitter discussion about whether part of ACLS training should be training team leaders in debriefing post-ACLS or post-cardiac event. So I think the, the need is high. And uh, I think this approach is a pretty good one. As you say, it's a very uh, feasibility-focused process. Here's something you can do without necessarily trying to prove that it's the best or the only way of doing it. A couple of little interesting things about the paper itself. Even just by setting up the definition, they've been very strenuous to avoid the assessment, even in the in the acronym, but also strenuous to avoid the emotional context uh, and they define post-event debriefing as a facilitated interprofessional team reflection after a clinical event that focuses on improving both system and team performance. A very cognitive definition, not even a – that definition doesn't even include the sort of emotional uh, diffusing that might go on, although they do make reference to it in the paper. Um, just while we're talking about the paper, I thought it was a bit interesting given that they were talking about nursing uh, being leaders of this process, that there was no nurse co-author on the paper. And uh, I think that is, though, critically, this is what's new here, looking at the literature. Um, when you look at the other articles that are cited in this paper, um, what's new in this one is that the uh, senior nurses are leading the debriefing, which I think has helped to make it quite feasible. So there's a few just sort of general thoughts. It is interesting to look at a very cognitively and systems processes designed kind of debrief it seems like certainly from my own empirical experience a lot of the movement towards hot debriefing in my department anyway is is kind of tied to that wellness movement as well and i guess uh looking at the bloggers response on the journal club this month uh, it was a really entertaining and very lively and, and somewhat heated discussion with a lot of that being focused on that tension between emotional needs and cognitive needs in a, in a hot debrief. I think if I had to summarize it, there were three kind of main points. And one was that, you know, most of us really admired the simplicity of the info tool and its local success and um, thought about how a similarly streamlined approach uh, involving um, charge nurses might be appropriate for our departments. There was a lot of desire, I think, because of the success of the paper in terms of wanting a lot more detail within the article itself about some of the nuts and bolts about how to actually roll this out within your own department. And then we got into quite a nice meaty discussion about whether to separate technical debriefs from emotional debriefing. I think when we started the online discussion, I was lucky to have a, a, a new friend I met in Boston recently called Farouk, who uh, sort of shared his reflections about event debriefing within their local service, his local service. And I think it was a, not perennial, but a very almost universal kind of experience where, you know, there's some movement within his local hospital. He's trained up a few physicians to get good at it. Uh, they're kind of the will to do it is there and then the shifts he says are always so busy I often feel overloaded so it often now does not dawn on me to debrief and this is the complaint I get also from other staff members who have not debriefed it's just too busy and this is why I really like the idea of a designated member to debrief and a charge nurse sounds perfect so um 
the model itself was was very much appealing, um, but then when it came to actually working out how we're going to roll out this idea within our own department, while there was a clear provision of the tool and stuff and, and you could clearly see what they were doing from that perspective, a lot of people wanted a lot more detail, um, like Sarah Jansen's and uh, Susan Eller and Derek Louie all expressed a desire for more information. Um, and Derek was a, a sort of expressed concern regarding the fact that it's a fairly editorial nature of the paper, which didn't worry me so much because I think that's sort of where the level of conversation is with this kind of thing at the moment. There was a lot of disagreement regarding whether to separate technical debriefs from emotional debriefs. And I'll be interested to see what you think, Vic, because I suspect we lie on slightly different um, levels of emphasis there when we're talking about clinical debriefs. By the end of the month, there kind of seemed to be two main camps, those who felt emotion couldn't be separated from cognition and, and so it really needed to be acknowledged in that hot debrief because we felt that um, while it can be damaging to maybe talk about emotional issues that, through a facilitation that hasn't necessarily been trained in that area, there's also potential concern about just trying to pretend that those emotions don't exist. And so there were some people who very much took the stance um, that, we really had to acknowledge staff distress if it was happening within a resuscitation. Stuart, and who's the primary author, and Farouk and Derek did also kind of express the dangers of turning a post-event debrief into a counselling session. Um, Derek highlighted the Cochrane Review that cautioned debriefing might be associated with higher PTSD scores, um, while Stuart argued that debriefing emotional issues take time, and as such it should be done at a later stage when it can be facilitated by, more thoroughly by um, more trained staff. He also noted that actually engaging in too many emotional issues in a hot debrief can actually lead to the lengthiness in the process being extended and that can actually end up being a barrier to debriefing at all if every time you have a hot debrief in the department it ends up into a big sort of emotional uh, share-all. Yeah, well, I just think this is a pretty interesting conundrum uh, for the process and I'm not sure where you think I lay on that spectrum that we were different, but I do think... You can't have a discussion about facts without, first of all, sorting out a few feelings. I, I hear what people are saying about harm, but I just find it really hard to process at face value that talking about how you feel is going to be a harmful thing. I get the idea that there might need to be more, but I also get the idea that a lot of the things that we're doing, you know, we might not feel that intensely emotion about, but we should just check in. Uh, I do think also the two are intertwined because often some of our feelings, i.e. feelings of inadequacy or feelings of distress, might be related to a cognitive issue like how good a technical performance we did. And so I guess for me, uh, I think maybe that's the only shame of this being a sort of commentary paper because if you did have 250-odd debriefs and we're getting so much harm out of talking about feelings, you might have expected to find some. I don't think you can just jump in and say, now we're not going to talk about your feelings, we just want to talk about how it went. For me, that would feel really odd. Yeah, so it turns out we think exactly the same. But um, <laughs> the, I, um, I think that one, I was trying to challenge myself on this though because when I was kind of reflecting on it, I think it's actually a really valid concern, particularly from, say, uh, Stuart Rose's perspective where if you're rolling out this big model where suddenly you've got a whole chunk of like a large group of people doing this on a consistent basis, I think sometimes we can come with a, a sort of biased frame that everyone who does this stuff is really emotionally intelligent and that's probably not the case, particularly if you're going to allocate it on a um, departmental role basis rather than an individual skills basis. So 
I could see that there could be the potential for this to go really badly if you had someone who wasn't very emotionally intelligent sort of ramming into a, a very sensitive discussion post an intense event. You're, very, you're being very generous there, Ben. You're being very generous, generous <laughs> uh, with 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 being prepared to challenge your own opinion. Most of us uh, haven't well, got that same generosity. Well, but, it was, <laughs> but it was interesting, right? Because people were really quite intense about it compared to most of our other discussions. Like people seem to feel really strongly about whether you need to acknowledge emotion or not. Um, I did want to finish on. Um, so we were lucky enough to have Laura Rock come in and uh, she contributed the final comment of the month and she argued, look, I do think we should seek two goals for managing intense emotion and one is to diminish intensity of emotion by naming and validating it to allow for effective cognitive processing and two, to explore the emotion to better understand what's behind it and emotions are a window into what really matters to people and if we take emotions at face value, we risk losing a better understanding of ourselves and others. And I thought that was beautiful. And I think, I don't know if this analogy works, but it kind of feels to me a little bit like we're talking about, um, if I remember my high school physics, which I probably don't, you know, when you're talking about a, a particle and a wave being eventually the same thing, if you look at it at the right frequency, like I think these things are just so tied together that to try and separate emotion and cognition in a 10 minute period after an emotionally intense event, I think that's... Um, I think that's impossible. Would be my stance. I'm going to use that particle and wave analogy again. Okay, so I'm going to go with it's awesome. I was pretty sure it's awesome, but you know, maybe not. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sweet. So, uh, might move on to the expert opinion, um, and I probably had a bit of bias inviting Liz Crow to be our expert this month because I think she also has uh, a lot of experience involved in emotional debriefing. Um, so if you don't know Liz, she is an advanced clinician social worker who's worked extensively to, for 20 years uh, with individuals, families, and children's, children impacted by grief, loss, trauma, crisis, and bereavement. I know her because she is uh, the um, head social, one of the social workers in uh, one of the PICUs in uh, Brisbane's major children hospital. And her job in terms of the sort of emotional... Um, what's the right word, noise that she would experience is huge. So she's exposed daily to death and violence and trauma and illness and she would support a family through the death of their child every week of her career. Uh, she's currently a PhD candidate with the School of Medicine and University of Queensland um, and she's an international speaker as well. And I really enjoyed Liz's response because I saw a different side to Liz too because I know Liz is... Um, sort of, you know, a smack presenter and someone who's very charismatic and um, sort of has a lot of street smarts in terms of just having looked after people in emotional distress for so long. But her expert response was actually very academic and, and clearly very thoroughly researched and um, thought out. And so it's very much worth downloading our PDF and having a look at. Um, in it, she basically acknowledges that, you know, most clinical debriefing is being done around the world by well-intentioned staff with little training in it. It's usually outside their role descriptions, and it often sort of involves clinicians who have been involved in the event itself being the facilitators, which has pros and cons. She argues that there's definitely a hunger for it and that it's being done, but it's being done without necessarily any of us knowing what's the right way to go about it. One thing I really like about Liz's response is she very much directly addresses the Cochrane Review from 2002. I'm just going to quote her. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it will be useful. Um, she says, look, with the release of the Cochrane Review in 2002 by Rose et al., 
Uh, debriefing of any nature was deemed to be at best benign and at worst dangerous. Health professionals were told to cease all debriefing with no other mechanism or intervention suggested as an alternative. And it's important to note that the Cochrane Review was evaluating single-session interventions for a very different population than health professionals. The cohorts who were involved in compulsory debriefings include MVA victims, relatives of seriously injured individuals 12 hours post the injury, women who experienced miscarriage, acute burns victims who were still undergoing active treatment, and women who had just given birth. Only one study included second responders. So I think that's really, really important stuff to absorb because as she notes, from this very small sample size of varied populations, debriefing has been labelled dangerous. Um, and I think that 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 study has sort of um, created significant kind of cultural echoes that have impacted the way we've approached this for the last decade or so. Um, go on. Yes, I agree. I think I would also recommend that people read her uh, summary as well for exactly that same reason. And, it, well, obviously it sort of helps me. It doesn't get in the way of my intuitive feeling that uh, some feelings are good. Yeah. She also goes on to really respectfully critique the info paper and I really like how she mixes kind of her street smarts from doing this a lot for the past 15 years and then um, the academic knowledge as well. And, and she acknowledges that... Um, there are some potential blind spots for those intending to implement info. And she just raises so some very valid concerns about documenting reflections on staff performance in a resuscitation, given that there are medico-legal implications. And so she kind of advises caution regarding re recording anything like that. And I think particularly in a kind of post-Babagawa case world at the moment, I think a lot of people would share her concerns. Um, she also asks for a lot more sort of nuts and bolts regarding the debriefing process. And because she's done it a lot, she asks for some practical stuff like who can and can't be involved? Are there people who are going to be excluded? You're going to make it clear that senior nursing staff or senior ED staff who are just interested in coming on and having a listen, are they going to be welcome or not? How do you establish psychological safety? And then she explores how you can measure the validity of these processes. Uh, so it's a great uh, response. I was very uh, privileged to have her take such uh, a big amount of time to write it and uh, please do have a look simulcast excellent work ben and uh, i'll also direct people to the infographic that you did of the article very nice that's in the pdf as well as now on twitter and liked and retweeted by many people that gives a summary of it and just while we're talking about forms because a lot of people i think get hung up on that this one is a good one although i do get the sense it's a little bit of a compromise with a data collection tool for obvious reasons uh, for their publication but i did notice in their references there's hot debriefing form examples from the american heart association uh, there's a link to that uh, as well as other links to literature about tools like the discern tool and others that people have used if people want to have a bit of a look at those things the links are all in there yeah, I'm going to add as well a link to Liz's podcast on St. Emlyn's about clinical debriefing as well. Fantastic. All right, we might go on to our other papers if that sounds okay to you. All right, so I've picked three papers. The first two are about uh, simulation uh, educators. So the title of the first one is EPAs, that is Entrustable Professional Activities for Simulation Leaders. The time has come. This is by Amy Gardner and colleagues in the Journal of Surgical Education just this year, 2018. And it's an opinion commentary piece which sets out the idea that we should have some accessible criteria for people involved in simulation and that we should only 
well, I guess, let them do it if they achieve certain demonstrable capabilities. So I think the first sentence, and I'm actually going to quote it from the article, sets this up pretty well. The time has come to move away from simulation educators who represent a convenient sample of available faculty and towards strategic selection of instructors who have demonstrated competency in the required knowledge, skills and abilities necessary for high quality simulation instruction. Uh, and then paired with the last sentence, which I thought was very uh, provocative, passion is not enough. So I guess a couple of things. It's hard to argue with the rationale that we should be trying to have high-quality educators in simulation. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. I think that's probably, though, then where the point of departure is how we get those high-quality people through both recruitment, training, and to what extent do we need that to be demonstrated and by whose standard. So a little bit of a diversion uh, to just what is an entrustable professional activities. Is that something you're used to using, Ben, or familiar with? It's not a three-letter acronym I throw around a lot. All right. You've probably used it but not known about it, uh, in particular because a lot of specialist training colleges use this principle uh, on things like their workplace-based assessment forms and others. So, again, I'm going to sort of quote from the article and then maybe paraphrase a little bit, but these concept of EPAs uh, were originally described by a medical educator from the Netherlands, Oli Ten Carter, who essentially says it's worth codifying the nature of a particular knowledge or skill and then defining levels of competence. So it works really well for things like procedural skills, like can you tell us what it takes to put in a central line, then can you do it under supervision while getting some micro feedback about your technique, then can you do it with the person in the room next door, and then can you just do it without even telling the consultant you're doing it. So this is the sort of concept of an entrustable professional activity. And probably one of the other things is it breaks it down quite narrowly so a procedural skill might be one, but it might be even smaller than that. So it becomes a very granular uh, assessment process. So to think about how this applies to the article, the authors then suggest that there's certain domains in simulation that we should be developing EPAs for. And they're not surprising. Uh, there's a list that's in the art article, simulation, curricular development, educational theory, assessment, debriefing, research, simulation operations, and administration. And they give the example of one that might be used in debriefing. And it gives you a sense of the detail that would go into in terms of describing what an expected level of performance would be before you would reach this entrustable professional activity. So it describes it, it says what are the uh, information you need to assess the progress and what levels, say, is unsupervised practice. So it's a pretty granular kind of exhausting process, Ben. Um, you can tell already what I think of it, but uh, what about you? I guess I just feel a little bit conflicted about um, as we've discussed in the past with other kind of expectations of simulation educators that that's very reasonable to expect in a big institution. But I think as you get to sort of the coalface uh, sim educator in a small institution who's, you know, and trying to do it cheap and dirty on their own, um, it can sort of set a pretty harsh level of expectation, I guess. Maybe I'm being too soft. <laughs> well, yes, uh, certainly in the short term, it would probably destroy our all our variable faculties because we wouldn't be able to achieve those things. That said, I think the idea of having some 
uh, demonstrable skill sets is relevant. And certainly the Society for Simulation Healthcare has tried to do that through their accreditation or credentialing processes. I like the thought, but I'm a bit worried just going back to their first sentence about passion isn't enough. The trouble is that this level of detail might just kill that passion that wasn't enough. I guess I'm kind of a little negative here, aren't I? Um, despite being very much at one with the motivation. Yeah, I feel like it's, um, I guess I'm not trying to critique the paper per se here, but I feel like uh, I was having a discussion the other day with someone who was arguing that, you know, you've got to be a bit more tolerant of pollution in, say, India and China because they have to be allowed to go through their own kind of industrial revolutions. And I think this is still an evolving specialty depending on where you're at and uh, particularly, like you said, where there's passion but not necessarily huge amounts of expertise. Uh, sometimes I think it might be an unrealistic expectation at this stage. Yes, although how we got on to Am pollution. Am I pulling out like weird analogies? <laughs> I think so. We've gone from physics to geography. I don't know. Can we just get back to the particle <laughs> of the Somehow, I'll see if I can make it work. Simulcast. The next paper I was planning to do also focused on simulation educators, but this time uh, not so much what their qualifications are as what they get out of being simulation educators. So this is an article by Peter Diekman and a number of European colleagues as well as Barry Isenberg from Miami uh, entitled Long-Term Experiences of Being a Simulation Educator, a Multinational Interview Study. So this was in Medical Teacher in May 2018. And the background to this is little is known about aspects related to the simulation educators, in particular the long-term effects of fulfilling the role of a simulation educator. So as I said, this is probably remarkable for a couple of reasons. One is if you just want to read a really, really nice qualitative study, this is it. These are very experienced researchers and sim providers and it shows. Uh, the setup in the introduction is pretty masterful, including a why this matters. Um, they offer us up a theoretical framework related to a sort of transformative learning theory and the idea that they postulate the transformation that happens in simulation educators, both as clinicians and as educators uh, during the time that they engage in that. Uh, the literature review does this lovely job of uh, essentially putting a little ring fence around the gap that they feel like their article is going to fulfil and also offers us an interesting focus question about whether instructors in CRM, crisis resource management, and ACLS, which is a bit more black and white, uh, might be different. So to describe their methods, uh, they called it a semi-structured exploratory interview study, and they looked at the experience of simulation educators in the ALS or CRM courses in Denmark, Norway, and the U.S., and uh, there was more methodologic goodness for those who are interested, but I won't bore you with the details. They talked about the research team's reflexivity. They gave us an example of the actual interview guide and they described in detail how they coded the responses. So they did 15 interviews and they found three overarching themes. So one was just general reflections about the educator role in simulation-based learning and what they felt their uh, job was both as a role model as well as as a teacher. Uh, the second theme was thinking about the transfer of the knowledge and skills from the simulation setting uh, to other healthcare settings like giving feedback uh, and indeed to other just work settings such as managing conflict uh, and the skills that these educators had got 
from their role in debriefing. And finally, this overarching transformative experience at the individual and organisational level where being involved in simulation educated made people think differently about their role as clinicians and as educators. So as I said, this uh, was a well-done study, but I think maybe it wasn't surprising, but it's interesting to see how people described that sort of personal and professional and organisational journey of being a simulation educator's uh, had And as the authors say, um, this does have some implications for the way we run courses, the way that we think about educators' career development, um, and, and I quote, the scientific understanding of simulation as a social practice. So what did you think, Ben? I, I thought it was lovely. I'd, I'd probably advocate if you're looking for like bang for your buck in terms of if you're not like a super nerdy methods person that this paper isn't going to change your practice so much. But it's a really beautiful point for reflection and, and thinking about how this stuff changes you and uh, I know I after reading it I was thinking about I was driving home the other night from an evening shift and I was like I had this kid who I my system one thought had the flu and my system two was going but you can't explain the particular in combination with a very mild coagulopathy and uh, and I was having to sort of have this weird meta moment on the car drive home. And I think, you know, teaching this stuff, it does does change how you practice. And that's a really um, lovely journey to go on, but also a really important one to reflect on. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if this really came out in their interviews, but it wasn't written about in their paper. Um, and your story makes me think of this. Is it you or is it the training you've had? And is this association or causation? Maybe you're always going to be this super reflective guy, Ben, and uh, that's drawn you into simulation as well as made you have those uh, thoughts as you're driving home. Or is it because you've got involved in sim, you think hard about education and, and reflection, and now you're like that where you wouldn't have been before? It's probably somewhere in between. Yeah, probably. It, it, you know, and it tracks you, I guess, but I certainly wouldn't have had the words to understand it so much. Yeah, no, that's probably a good point. Mm. It came up on our debriefing panel last week. Oh, cool. Simulcast. All right, and our final paper. So uh, this is a sentimental favourite because Walter Epic is the first author and I know this is one of the last of his papers for his PhD, which he was uh, celebrating the uh, some of the final submissions for when we were in Spain this last week. So the title of this paper is Learning How to Learn Using Simulation, Unpacking Disguised Feedback Using a Qualitative Analysis of Doctor's Telephone Talk. So this is also in Medical Teacher in May 2018 and another interview study. They did 17 interviews with physicians in training. And what they were asking them is about their experiences of referring people to consultation services or calling their seniors for advice, uh, which they capture under this general term of telephone talk. And uh, again, it asked people to describe their experiences first and quite specifically talk about a recent telephone conversation that stood out and why, some difficult or challenging situations, and then asked these same physicians in training, what advice do you give more junior uh, doctors or medical students about telephone talk? And the aim of this uh, for this study was to look at what, what's the needs assessment in terms of what do people need to do this job better? Uh, and then to actually develop simulation strategies 
for teaching this. So I think this is, again, intuitively a high yield activity, Ben, um, because it's certainly one of the things that I think continues to challenge us. I don't think it's just doctors in training. Uh, how do we get make those phone calls successful? Yeah, I'd, I'd rather intubate than have a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> conversation. So, I'm a big conflict avoider. So uh, it, it really hit home in terms of um, being a lovely mix of something that is really important, that's a significant kind of educational gap in the way we train people uh, and a, a lovely methodology as well. Good. We're in violent agreement here today. I, I know. Does, does that lead to a good podcast? I don't know. We'll have to argue about yeah, something else. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll just summarise a couple of the findings. I mean, obviously there's some detail that is worth looking at in this paper, but to sort of summarise a couple of the main points, uh, unsurprisingly the providers all said that they had needed more training in telephone conversations, that they had difficulty in picking out what kind of things the listeners really wanted to hear, being succinct enough, being able to uh, give that sort of overview statement right and early on. And uh, what that then resulted in when they were looking at developing their scenarios using simulated uh, patient actors, well, they used the term simulated patient, but I would have thought they would have been simulated providers in these scenarios. Anyway, and I thought one of the things they really broke down nicely that I wouldn't have anticipated comes out in the title about this uh, disguised feedback because they said that there were two main things they were trying to teach using this uh, simulation-based strategy for um, improving telephone talk. And one was learning to perform. So that is, yeah, sure, practice your referral to the orthopedic registrar and get feedback on that. Uh, using a kind of Pearl's framework framework to debrief. But the other strategy or the other aim was learning how to learn from telephone conversations, learning to identify what they call disguised feedback, which usually came in the form of interruptions, and which I think most of us just have this gut feel of how dare they let me get my story out, whereas Walter has very clearly reframed this as disguised feedback. If people are interrupting you, it's because you are going down the wrong track of providing information and they would clearly like it packaged somewhat differently. So I thought those two things were really clever. It's not just trying to get it right. It's also trying to leverage uh, this training experience so that you can learn from your future real conversations. Yeah, it was very clever. And I think for me it was almost even extending it further, a reframe on remembering the positive outcomes of respectful conflict. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, because I think it would have been hard for me to write this article without uh, putting a lot more negative connotations on the interruptions. Yeah, but it's, yeah, changed the way I think about those things, I guess. But maybe enables me to be more snappy when I'm being called overnight. I don't know. I can say it's feedback now. I can't imagine you. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, not overnight. Not overnight. All right. Well, I think finally what this adds. because I think people are aware of this need and I think I've certainly been involved in what I might call random role plays full of stereotypes uh, where people have sought to achieve this same learning goal and I think what the authors of this paper give us is a much more carefully crafted uh, process involving scenarios um, and also taking it to that meta level of learning how to learn and uh, leveraging the sim experience and taking it back to the workplace. So. Another nice one to read, Ben. Yeah, nice work. Simulcast. All right, well, you better tell us what's coming up for July. 
Great. So for July, uh, we are going to do a paper called Difficult Debriefing Situations, a Toolbox for Simulation Educators. And it's in Medical Teacher, uh, published in May 2018, uh, with the primary author being VJ Grant. Um, and it is an open access paper. So just come to our um, website and uh, the link will be there. And uh, we've got Steph Barwick is going to be our expert this month. So really looking to hear her thoughts on um, what is a very pragmatic and useful paper for those of us that can get into some tight situations in a complex debrief. All right, Simulcast listeners, we'll uh, be talking to you again next month. Farewell. All right, signing off. Join the discussion with Simulcast Journal Club.